0: Our daily Bible readings in recent days have been in what I think is one of the toughest sections of the Bible to just stick with it and read through it Been reading in the book of Leviticus. I hope you're keeping up with your daily Bible readings. Some of it's a little harder, a little more tedious, and this section, as we read through the book of Leviticus, is certainly that. Uh, So we acknowledge that it's hard and hard to stay with it, but we encourage you to keep it up. The book of Leviticus is a direct continuation of the message in Exodus as God is giving and revealing His law to Moses for the children of Israel. In fact, the book of Leviticus starts out with and. Well, that's a a joining word, right? That's a conjunction that joins to something else. And so Exodus and then goes right on into Leviticus. The name Leviticus means of pertaining to or belonging to the Levites. And so it is a book that describes uh, how God is to be served, has particular emphasis on how God is to be worshipped, and it's written as a guide for the children of Israel as to how they would worship God. There's very little historical information in the book of Leviticus as far as, things that happened, events that occurred. There's almost none of that in the book of Leviticus. It's all just ordinances and laws that pertain to the children of Israel. We understand that we are not under that law, uh, and, and that is the thing that we should be very grateful for. We're going to try to draw out some of that contrast tonight. We live under a very much better system. But I thought what we would do is look to the book of Leviticus and study that tonight, and what I especially want us to do is spend some time summarizing sort of a general overview of the laws that pertain to sacrifices that are spelled out there in the book of Leviticus. So we want to talk about sacrifice, the laws of sacrifice under the Mosaic system in our brief study tonight. And then, Lord willing, what we want to do is follow this up next Sunday uh, with a, an overview of the, the holy days, the feast days that the children of Israel were to observe. That will be our plan do that again we're not living under this law we're not teaching these lessons for the purpose of saying you better get busy doing this or else because these laws don't pertain to us but it is certainly beneficial to have a working understanding of what those laws of sacrifice were and then we'll try to kind of draw that together and contrast that uh, with the things that we have under the law of christ we stop for just a minute to thank you all for being here had a good Lord's Day. We are very privileged to be able to assemble again on Sunday night. We're glad that you are inclined to do that. Uh, uh, we think that we get a great benefit from being able to be together a second time on the Lord's Day. and We're glad that you feel that way and you're here to be a part of it. We have visitors tonight. We're very grateful for our visitors. We hope you'll come back every time you have a chance to be here. All right. So again, our purpose in studying Leviticus is to maybe better understand what those laws were that the children of Israel were supposed to observe. We don't observe them, but they had to. And then, of course, contrast that with our superior system under our Lord Jesus Christ. So there were several categories of sacrifices that the children of Israel were expected to make. The first of them, and maybe the one that comes to our mind, first of all, were the burnt offerings. Uh, And when people offered burnt offerings, it was for the intended purpose of expressing their devotion to and surrender to God. Burnt offerings could be of a bull or a sheep or a goat or even a turtle dove or pigeon. And the the, the various kinds of animals that could be offered were intended uh, as an advantage for the poor so that they could still offer to God even though they might be too poor to offer a bull in sacrifice in chapter 1 of leviticus beginning at verse 3 if his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd let him offer a male without blemish he shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the lord and he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him and he shall kill the bullock before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar, that is, by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. One of the things that we're going to see over and over again, I won't emphasize it every time because we find it just so frequently, but there's this emphasis that when sacrifices were made, they were to be made of an animal that was without blemish. You could almost imagine how someone might think, you know i got this animal i got this old bull i'm telling you i need to move him out anyway he's old he's he's crippled uh he's he's not able to perform any services for me anymore at all he's not useful as a farm animal and as i'm thinking about it i really need to make a sacrifice anyway i going not take that old bull that i need to get rid of anyway and i'm going to offer him that way i can kill two birds with one stone because i need to move this bull off he's no good to me anymore and I need to make a sacrifice too, and I'm just going to cover both with one one act. That obviously was never acceptable. That was not supposed to be the case. And so God always required the best. We learn something about God in that, under that system and under ours. He, he does not accept our our leftovers, our cast-offs, our seconds. He wants our very best, and we see that. And it's going to be, we'll note it another time or two, but it's repeated frequently throughout all these laws of sacrifice. Notice this sacrifice was of his own voluntary will. And so this was something that a person did. As we said, it it would suggest devotion to God, surrender to Him, serving Him. And so he would make this kind of an offer voluntarily. It also says here that it was to make atonement. And so in any of the sacrifices, there was this acknowledging the fact that they were sinners, that they had failed God. The notion of atonement is to make amends for, uh, to compensate for wrongs done. And so when a person offered a burnt sacrifice, he was acknowledging his sinfulness. He was, he was expressing devotion to God and he was making an acknowledgement of his own failures as a, an individual. I think it's interesting that he, the sacrifice giver, would kill the bullock before the Lord. And so sometimes we might imagine that it was always the priest who did the slaughtering of the animals, but it is noted several times on the different kinds of sacrifices that were offered that the one who was actually making the sacrifice uh, would do the slaying of the animal, and then the priest would proceed to do the other necessary things that were associated with the sacrifice. In regards to the burnt offerings, it says in chapter 1, verse 9, "...the priest shall burn all on the altar." to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Concerning some of the other sacrifices that we'll talk about, different parts were kept out and and maybe sometimes the the worshiper himself would consume part of the sacrifice. Often the priests were given some parts of the sacrifice and that was part of the support system for the priest. But in regards to the burnt sacrifice, none of that took place. Nothing was left. No part was given to the priest. Now this, process was ongoing, and the, the the fires of the burnt sacrifices were burning continuously. In chapter 6, beginning verse 9, "...command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. It is the burnt offering, because of the burning upon the altar all night into the morning. And the fire of the altar shall be burning in it, and the priest shall put on his linen garment, and his linen breeches shall he put upon his flesh, and take up the ashes which the fire hath consumed from with the burnt offering on the altar. And he shall put them beside the altar." And he shall put off his garments and put on other garments and carry forth the ashes without the camp into a clean place. And the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it and it shall not be put out. The fire shall be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. And so, this was the kind of situation they were under. There was always a need for sacrifice. The need for, uh, and the expectation that sacrifices would be made to God was continual. It was never satisfied. Uh, the fire was always burning, and it was never put out. And so that was the, and again, I, I'm, I may certainly be guilty of oversimplification in some of these summaries that I'm trying to make here about these sacrifices, but those were some of the rules that pertain to the burnt offerings. Another kind of offering was the meal offering. Now here, there's going to be some confusion, especially if you read primarily, as I do, the King James Version of the Bible, because the King James Version says this is a meat offering. But if you're reading any of the newer translations, they're going to say something like a meal offering or a grain offering. Now, that's not actually a a mistake in translation or a contradiction. The Old English word for food was meat, and it was a general word. When we think meat, we think the flesh of animals, a, a steak or a roast is meat. But... Uh, when the King James Version was translated, the word meat meant food in general. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, when the first Christians had obeyed the gospel just at Pentecost and thereafter? In Acts 2, verse 46, it says, They continued daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house that eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. They weren't just eating meat. They weren't just eating the flesh. Now, they were eating their food. And, that, and, and so that's a, a general word. Uh, and so if you're reading the King James translation, it may be somewhat confusing when it talks about this meat offering because it's really a meal or a grain offering. Newer versions will say that. And you might make a note of that in your King James version if you use that. Notice in chapter 2, beginning verse 1, and when any will offer a meat offering, now again, that should be meal or grain, when any shall offer this offering to the Lord, he shall his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil upon it and put frankincense thereon. And so this grain or meal offering could be of uncooked grain, but it could also be uh, something that had been cooked or prepared. As that text goes on, it describes an oblation of meat offering bacon in an oven, uh, an oblation of a meat offering bacon in a pan, an oblation of a meat offering bacon in a frying pan. So there were specific instructions about not only uncooked grain that might be offered, but different grains that might be cooked in different ways. And there were different rules that pertained to each of that. Now, what they did with this grain or meal offering is is further explained in that text. If thou bring the meat offering that is made of these things unto the Lord, when it is presented unto the priest, he shall bring it unto the altar. And the priest shall take from the meat offering or meal offering a, a memorial thereof and shall burn it upon the altar. It is an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And that which is left of the meat offering shall be Aaron's and his son's. Now, here we see that they only offered just, just a part of, of the sacrifice. The priest took just a, 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 a small part of it, actually, and that was burnt upon the altar. The grain of that was burnt on the altar. And then what was left was for the priest and for his advantage. We understand that part of this sacrificial system involved elements of it that would allow for the priest and for their ongoing support. We remember the priests weren't given a, a, a land possession. They weren't They weren't as blessed uh, in the sense that they could go out and own property uh, by inheritance and farm and raise their own food. But they were provided for, well provided for, but in the law of Moses. And part of that provision was that some of these various sacrifices, they could participate in them. And this meat or grain meal offering was one of those. So I think it's really important when you see... The word meat there, the King James, remember it as meal or grain offering. Then there was what was called the peace offering. Uh, and the peace offering was engaged as an act of rejoicing for those who were at peace with God. So the, the grain offering acknowledged God as the giver and sustainer. The peace offering was an act of rejoicing over the fact that they had this special relationship with God. I would emphasize this was for those who were at peace with God. This this was not a sacrifice made in order to restore peace with God. I think a lot of times when we think of sacrifices, we, we, we have the idea in mind, well, I've sinned and my relationship with God is broken, and so now I need to make a sacrifice to get back on a right standing with God. Certainly that, and we'll see more of that here as we go a little bit further, but that wasn't true of all the sacrifices. Uh, really, none of the sacrifices that we've mentioned so far were in that vein. They were to express devotion. They were to, to, to acknowledge God as giver. They were a sign of rejoicing that they had this relationship with God. Notice in chapter 3 at verse 1, beginning out, as we think about this peace offering, it says, "...if his oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offer it of the herd, whether it be male or female... He shall offer it without blemish. There's that same thing again, over and over again. Without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it. Again, he does the killing at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron his sons, the priest, shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. And he shall offer the fat that covers the inwards and all the fat that is upon the inwards. Aaron's sons shall burn it upon the altar, upon the burnt sacrifice which is upon the wood. That is on the fire. It is an offering made by fire, a sweet savour unto the Lord. Now here, obviously, there were certain parts that were to be burnt, but not all. We said about that burnt sacrifice earlier. The whole animal was consumed in the fire. But here, uh, his his sacrifice in the peace offering involved burning specified parts of the innards of the animal, the fat. Uh, and, and, and some other elements from the internal part of the animal, that's what was burned upon the altar. But notice, it goes on. The flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, notice these were peace offerings for thanksgiving, shall be eaten the same day that it is offered. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offerings be a vow or a voluntary offering, it shall be eaten the same day that he offered his sacrifice And on the morrow also the remainder of it shall be eaten, but the remainder of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burnt with fire. Now, this is talking about the one making the sacrifice. And so he makes the sacrifice, and the animal is killed. Certain parts of the animal, the fat, some of the inward parts are burned as sacrifice, but the consumable flesh of the animal is spared And in this instance, not exclusively for the priest. Now, we're going to see in a minute that the priest had some advantage in this. But here is talking about the one who actually made the sacrifice. He was to eat the flesh of the sacrifice. There are two different kinds of peace offering. One was simple thanksgiving. You eat the flesh that day, but not any later than that day. Don't leave any till morning. Another kind of peace offering was when you made a vow, a voluntary vow of service, and that could be eaten that same day and the next day, but not any left over the third day. But this is talking about how the, the, the actual person making the sacrifice would consume parts of that animal. And then we know, too, that the priest also had advantage of some of that. He that offereth the sacrifice of his peace offerings unto the Lord, the priest shall burn the fat upon the altar... But notice, the breast shall be Aaron's and his sons, and the right shoulder shall you give to the priest. And so they they got some benefit or some part of this animal for, again, their support and sustenance. The word heave is used here. Sometimes we read about heave offerings, and another sort of synonymous term is a wave offering. A heave or wave offering. And what they did here, these were parts of the animal that weren't going to be burned on the altar, but they would actually raise it up to the Lord or wave it over the altar. And that was an act of showing that this was actually sacrificed to God, but they weren't burned on the altar. They were actually consumed by the priest and by the one making the sacrifice. So that were, those were some of the rules of the peace offering. So you got burnt offerings, meal offerings, peace offerings, And notice none of these things has specifically addressed the problem of sin in an individual's life. That's interesting to me because I think our first impression is when you think about sacrifice, you're talking about things that were done to deal with sin. That was not exclusively the case, not in the Old Testament system. And I think that would tell us that when we do things sacrificially for the Lord, it's not always that that we're doing them because we've sinned, Sometimes we do them out of thanksgiving, out of devotion, out of rejoicing. We do things, sacrificial things for the Lord, for those reasons as well. But then, of course, there was the sin offering. Again, this, I believe, is what we think of most often. Um, there, There were sin offerings, and the sin offerings were typically for sins of ignorance or weakness or inadvertence. In other words, people would sin. It wasn't that they set out to sin or that they hard-heartedly planned to sin and did so. These were more or less the kinds of sins that might have happened just out of weakness. So maybe you weren't being careful enough about what you were doing and how you were living. These kinds of sins, by the way, are contrasted in the Old Testament law with with an expression that we read sometimes about high-handed sin. So there were these sins of weakness or inadvertence that were contrasted with high-handed or intentional sins. So these were those, uh, those first sort. Weakness or inadvertence or even ignorance. Uh, some examples that we find listed are failing to give testimony when it was required of you to do so. Uh, touching something or becoming unclean in one way or another. You made these sacrifices. Failing to keep a vow through carelessness or uh, negligence would be a sin that would require a sin offering. In chapter three, uh, chapter 4, rather, we read of some of the regulations of the sin sacrifice. It says if the priest... Now, notice, who were who the ones who might have to make such a sacrifice? If the priest that is anointed do sin, oh, well, he's got to take care of his sins, too. By the way, the book of Hebrews really contrasts that With our system today, we have a priest who doesn't have to offer for his own sins, right? Jesus Christ. Back then, though, the priests were fallible, mortal human beings just like the people were. And so there was the provision. If the priest is the one who's done the sinning, well, he's got to take care of that. But it also mentioned if the whole congregation sinned. It's mentioned that if a ruler sins. And it's also mentioned if one of the common people sins. And so this might pertain to anybody, from the priest to the ruler. It might involve everybody or one common person specifically. What were they supposed to do? Well, go back up here to the top. If the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people, then let him bring for his sin which he hath sinned a young bullock without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering. And the priest that is anointed shall take of the bullock's blood, and he shall take off from it all the fat of the bullock for the sin offering, And the priest shall burn them upon the altar of the burnt offering. And the skin of the bullock and all his flesh with his head and his legs and his inwards and his dung, even the whole bullock, shall he carry forth without the camp unto a clean place where the ashes are poured out, and burn him on the wood with fire where the ashes are poured out, shall he be burnt. Again, we notice that no part of this was going to be consumed by anybody. But there was a part of it that was burned on the altar of burnt offering But then a a majority of that animal was actually taken outside the camp and burned in another place, uh, and, and all of that was done to address the problem of sin, whoever it may have been, whatever individual it may have been, who committed the sin, sin offerings. But then there's a whole other section of offerings that are called trespass offerings. These were more, and this probably is an oversimplification, but these were more the kind of sins that were done in a high-handed or intentional fashion. Someone deliberately sinned, knew better, but did it anyway. That's what sort of We do that sometimes too, don't we? So sometimes our sins are of weakness or inadvertence, but other times we know better, but we go ahead and sin anyway. The law of Moses covered those kind of things, and that intentional kind of sinning was called a... When you had to deal with that, you offered a trespass offering. Uh, the sin especially would be a kind of sin that caused harm. And when you made the trespass offering, you also had to pay compensation for the wrong that you had done. These would have included things like idolatry, uh, violating the laws of sacrifice that we've just been enumerating, failing to tithe, uh, moral issues, including things like lying or stealing, These would have all been in the trespass category, and a trespass offering had to be made. Notice in chapter 5, beginning verse 15, If a soul commit a trespass and sin, then shall he bring for his trespass unto the Lord a ram without blemish for a trespass offering, and he shall make amends for the harm that he hath done in the holy thing, and shall add the fifth part thereto, and give it to the priest, and the priest shall make an atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering, and it shall be forgiven him. Notice, He is to make amends for the harm that he had done and add the fifth part thereto. And so there's the compensation, actually a a sort of a fine or penalty that was added to the sacrifice for doing wrong. Chapter 5, verse 17, If a soul sin and commit any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the law of the Lord, there's your trespass. Chapter 6, verse 2, If a soul sin and commit a trespass against the Lord and lie to his neighbor, there's the sort of moral sin that would have been included uh, in this category. So there's a quick overview of the various kinds of offerings and sacrifices that the children of Israel were commanded to make in the book of Leviticus. I think it's interesting that three out of these five categories involve things that don't necessarily directly relate to sin... When I think our impression is always sacrifices were about sinning and having to make it right after you would sinned, that was not always the case. It certainly was an important part. We talk about the sin offering and the trespass offering. But these other sacrifices uh, were also a part of the law stated in Leviticus. Now, real quickly, let's just try to tie that in a little bit with what we have in our system. We're not under that law. My first question to you would be, are you grateful that we're not under that law today? I tell you, I am. Well, wouldn't it be something to have? First of all, it's just, and especially as you're reading through the book of Leviticus, there's just so much to keep up with there. So many details. And this offering and that offering, and when you do this offering, do that. But when you do that offering, do that. Boy, I'm telling you, there's just a lot to keep up with. And there's a lot of animals being sacrificed as well. Uh, we just got to be grateful that we don't live under that system. But notice some of the same elements that they were expected to provide, some of the same motivations that were expected to move them in making sacrifices, those still exist for us today. For instance, the burnt offering was to express devotion and surrender to God. Well, we're still supposed to do that, right? We don't bring an animal in order to do that. But in Romans chapter 12, beginning verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We don't have to make burnt sacrifices anymore to show our devotion to God, but instead we present our bodies as a living sacrifice devoted unto God. The idea that God is, giver and sustainer of life. We're still to be reminded of that, and we're to to act according to our acknowledgement that God is the giver and the sustainer. In Hebrews 13, verse 15, "...by Him, therefore, let us offer," what? "...the sacrifice of praise to God continually." That is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. And so, they had to give animals... as a a token or an expression of their gratitude and thanks to God for all that he did. We instead are privileged to simply offer him the praise of our lips, giving thanks. We should do that, though. It was expected of them. It's certainly expected of us. The peace offering, which was uh, an expression of their rejoicing in their relationship with God, We certainly should rejoice in our relationship with God. We're studying on Wednesday nights in the book of Philippians, and we're just at this section this coming Wednesday night, Philippians chapter 4, beginning verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. We still need to be rejoicing in our special covenant relationship that we enjoy with God. But then, in regards to the sin and the trespass offering, you know where we're going to go with that. Of course, Jesus provides that perfect sacrifice for us. lots Lots of things in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews, contrast those Old Testament sacrifices with the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. But I want to draw your attention to 1 Peter chapter 2. In First Peter chapter two, verse twenty-four. First Peter two twenty-four, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For we as we were as sheep going astray, but now are returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Jesus, of course, is that perfect sacrifice for our sins. Sacrifice was necessary. The price has to be paid for sin. It was so under the Old Testament law of Moses, it's so under our law too. But we have the perfect system. In the text that was read for us earlier from Hebrews chapter 10, that old system really couldn't get the job done. It was not possible. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, let me get to the right text. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4, not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. There was still something lacking under that system, and we have this perfect system, and the blood of Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's a better system, and we should rejoice in that. Thanks for your close attention to what we had to say. hope it's helpful. It's just sort of a summary of some of those things we've been reading in Leviticus. And again, I acknowledge it probably an oversimplification because all of those laws were very detailed and specific. But it does us some good to have a working understanding of what those requirements for the children of Israel were under that Old Testament law. Thanks for your good attention. We're going to sing a song of invitation. And in singing this song, we'll be encouraging everyone to make sure your life is right with God. If you need the advantage of Jesus' sacrifice in your life, and that might be to first become a Christian, to have your sins forgiven, to be brought into covenant relationship with God, to have the hope of eternity, if you've never been baptized for the remission of sins. Upon your faith, confession, and repentance will you be baptized for the remission of sins. If you're a Christian already, but you've slipped back, you've not been faithful to the Lord, come to Him again in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing this song.